Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from London today. On today's show, a secretary of state fired, a poison spy, and the Kremlin holds elections. First up, the American secretary of state gets fired via Twitter. What does Rex Tillerson's departure mean for America and the world? Then a poisoning in Britain sets off a major international incident with Russia. The United Kingdom will now expel 23 Russian diplomats. Where does the furor over a former spy go from here? It's also election day in Russia. But that really begs the question, will Putin be president for life? I'll ask one of his opponents, Zenia Sobchak. But first, here's my take. If confirmed as Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo will arrive at a department that has been battered by proposed budget cuts, hollowed out by resignations and vacancies, and neutered by President Trump's impulsive and personal decision-making style. But Pompeo's most immediate challenge will not be rebuilding the department or restoring morale. It will be dealing with an acute foreign policy crisis that is largely of the president's own making regarding the Iran nuclear deal. Now, Pompeo will have to tackle a genuine foreign policy challenge soon. President Trump has agreed to meet with Kim Jong-un before the end of May. This could be a promising development. Yet before Trump even sits down with Kim to discuss a nuclear deal, the administration will have to decide how to handle the pre-existing deal with Tehran. From the outset, Mike Pompeo has cheered Trump in his hardline posturing toward Iran. Trump has announced that America will no longer abide by the Iran nuclear pact unless European leaders agree to fix the deal's, quote, disastrous flaws, unquote. They seem unwilling to endorse more than cosmetic changes, and Iran, for its part, has flatly refused to renegotiate. All this means that by May 12th, the United States is set to pull out of the Iran accord, which could lead Iran to do the same thing and restart its nuclear program. And this would be happening at the very same time as the summit with North Korea, when the United States will surely be trying to convince North Korea of the benefits of signing a similar agreement. Recall that Iran did not have nuclear weapons, only a program that could have led to them. Still, the deal required the Iranians to scale back significant aspects of their program, dismantling 13,000 centrifuges, giving up 98% of their enriched uranium, and effectively shutting down their plutonium reactor at Iraq. The International Atomic Energy Agency has cameras and inspectors in Iran at every stage of the nuclear fuel cycle, from mines to labs to enrichment facilities. The IAEA attests that Tehran has in fact abided by its end of the deal. Even Mike Pompeo himself has conceded as much. 
The Iran deal is not perfect, but it has stabilized a dangerous and spiraling situation in the Middle East. Were the deal to unravel, an already simmering region would get much hotter. In an interview with CBS's 60 Minutes, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, recently affirmed that his kingdom would go nuclear if Iran did. The tragedy here is that this is an entirely self-inflicted crisis. There was already enough instability in the world that the administration did not need to create more. Pompeo should recognize that his job as Secretary of State will be to solve problems, not produce them, and that he should preserve the Iran agreement and spend his time on North Korea. Pompeo should take a page from his boss's book. Trump has reversed course on issue after issue, often with little explanation. Remember what he said about NATO? I said it was obsolete. It's no longer obsolete. Likewise, he promised to label China a currency manipulator and then decided against it. He insisted that talking to North Korea would be a waste of time, then eagerly announced that he would. So whatever Pompeo said about the Iran deal months ago is now ancient history. He should simply declare that right now, under the circumstances, the deal is worth preserving. There are significant costs to the nation's credibility and reputation if Washington keeps reversing its positions on core foreign policy issues. Yet there are greater costs to stubbornly persisting with the wrong policy. So, Mr. Pompeo, repeat after me. The Iran deal was bad, but now it's good. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. It was a week filled with foreign policy intrigue. In one fell swoop or one long tweet, to be precise, the president fired his secretary of state and named a new one. In the world outside of 280 characters, he openly admitted to fibbing to the Canadian prime minister. He's fixing for a fight with South Korea on tariffs, which a big thanks for arranging a meeting between him and Kim Jong-un. And, of course, there is the big row between Britain and Russia over a spy poisoned on English soil. Joining me now, David Miliband, the former Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom. He is now the President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. Richard Haas, the President of the Council on Foreign Relations. He is the former Director of Policy Planning at the State Department. And here with me in London is Zanny Minton Beddoes, the Editor-in-Chief of The Economist. Uh, David Miliband, uh, what do you make of uh, the Tillerson firing? Have you ever seen anything like it in all your years in, the, in diplomacy? No, Rex Tillerson was inexplicably abusive towards his own uh, department. He tried to take on the State Department rather than work with the State Department. But the manner of his dismissal, and more important, what his dismissal portends for the future of American foreign policy, is obviously a, a grave concern. I can't think of a more dangerous moment when you've got crises around the world, not just North Korea and Iran, but the tragedy in Yemen, the man-made tragedy. You've got dysfunction in Washington of the kind that the Tillerson uh, demotion or uh, firing uh, represents. And you have a new belligerence on the part of the president that I think portends some really very, very major decisions coming up. I think that the uh, rising rhetoric uh, the great fear is now that the rising rhetoric is ma matched by actions on the part of the administration, because until now, the combination of Tillerson and Mattis, I think, has helped keep things in check. Um, Zanny, when you look at it, what, is the, what does the personnel change mean in policy terms? 
Well, I think you've gone from a weak and ineffective Secretary of State, but one who was broadly viewed as a grown-up uh, who held the conventional view of alliances and the importance of the global order, to a man in, in Mike Pompeo, who is someone clearly the, who, who the president gets on with and who knows how to flatter the president, who's somewhere between a hardcore hawkish realist and an America firster. And I think what that means is you've basically got Trump now at the beginning of the second year of his presidency saying, I'm going to do it my way. And you had President Trump, remember, in the campaign, he was basically very all holds barred. He disliked alliances. He wanted to remake, make America great by dissing the world as it was. Then when he started in foreign policy, we all thought, actually, not that much will change because he's brought a bunch of generals and a bunch of grown-ups in. And I think now we're seeing him essentially get rid of the people that he doesn't like, who don't look good on TV or who don't say nice things to him, and bring in people much more to his liking. Uh, Richard Haas, you've long said that Tillerson should resign um, because he, was, he obviously didn't have the confidence of his boss. Uh, Max Booth, the historian, says Rex Tillerson is the worst secretary of state since 1898, since the United States became a great power. Uh, do you think that's true? And do you think, as Annie Minton Meadows does, that the Pompeo announcement is also a big policy shift towards a more hawkish or America first uh, direction? Oh, I'm sorry. We, we, we lost. So, so, uh, let me ask you, uh, Zanny Minton Betters, do you feel like um, when you look at, uh, at the, the new configuration, is it something that you're likely to see new policy on? Because part of what, I mean, for, for Trump, this is more in some ways just having people who were congenial around him. It seems like he just didn't get, he didn't enjoy the company of Rex Tillerson. <laughs> I think that's right. He certainly doesn't like people who may or may not have called him a moron. But we definitely, I think we now have people who, who have a different view on certain important things. So, so, as you said earlier in the show, on the Iran deal, clearly Mike Pompeo shares the president's view. Rex Tillerson didn't. Um, before that, you have the, Rex Tillerson was, you know, in favor of the climate change deal. He was much keener on alliances. On North Korea, he didn't know anything about what was going to happen in terms of direct talks. So that was partly a function of the fact that he was a very weak Secretary of State, but it was also partly a function, I think, that the president just didn't respect him. So is it better to have someone as America's chief diplomat who speaks for the president, which I think Mike Pompeo will do much more, but also you have someone who is much less likely, perhaps, to restrain the America First agenda? All right, we, we are going to come back with this panel, including Richard Haas, and we will talk about trade and Russia when we get back. And we are back with David Miliband, Zanny Minton Beddows, and hopefully Richard Haas, if we can get him back. Um, David Miliband, uh, big foreign policy challenge in your country. What to do about Russia? Um, we all know the, the circumstances, but I wanted to get your take on, I suppose, the simple question. Has Theresa May, has the British government been tough enough in their response to what they b believe was Vladimir Putin personally ordering uh, a murder on British soil? I think she's made the right start, but it can only be the start because this is an attack not just on the UK. It's the first use of chemical nerve agent since the Second World War on European soil. And therefore, it is an attack on, frankly, the whole of the Western alliance. I think the absolute key going forward is going to be two sets of allies that she needs to bring into play. The first are the obvious allies in the US and around Europe. 
where they're going to need to work together for some targeted financial sanctions that really address some of the people around Putin as well as Putin himself. The second thing is that we have to understand how Russia has been building alliances elsewhere in the world. It's been reaching out to Saudi Arabia. It's been reaching out to Israel. And those countries, too, who like to see themselves as very close allies of the US or the UK, they also need to be part of a very clear demonstration to President Putin and his regime that his attempts to sow discord around the world to undermine some very fundamental aspects of global stability are not acceptable. Frankly, Russia is now a member of the UN Security Council that behaves in too many ways like a rogue state. And unless that's met with a very clear and very united response, it's going to get worse. Uh, let me ask you, David, briefly, you, the, the leader of your party, the Labour Party in Britain, uh, has been much less uh, uh, tough on, on, uh, on Putin and Russia than you just were. Does that worry you? Well, I think what's extraordinary to many of us, I now live in New York, obviously running a, an international humanitarian agency, but watching the UK debate, what one sees is a symmetry between what Jeremy Corbyn says and what Donald Trump says. Both of them seek to evade pointing responsibility to, to Russia. Both of them have such a deep skepticism about the West that they end up excusing or at least finding ways to avoid pointing the finger at Russian undermining of the international system. And while skepticism about intelligence is an important part of the judgment that goes into policymaking, when skepticism means that it's greater of skepticism of the West than it is of what the Russians are saying, then it becomes very worrying indeed. Richard Haas, I think we have you back. Um, let me ask you, where does the administration go from here? Is, the, is it, are we likely to see a more America first policy, a neocon policy? I mean, give us the big picture. Well, the administration now has all sorts of challenges in its inbox. Some it inherited, like North Korea. Several, as you suggested, are its own making. The Iran one, the, the trade thing. Uh, you know, we've, we've already got a new secretary of state. If the rumors are true, it's a question of when and not if we have a new national security advisor. The one constant is the president. And for you know, the challenge is always uh, dealing with the real world as it is. And my, my crystal ball is no better than yours. I would simply say that this administration is on the edge of the most difficult two or three months in foreign policy in my memory. And it simply can't, you know, there ought to be a rule of thumb, maybe only one nuclear crisis at a time. So I would argue for shelving the Iran one, focusing on a reasonable approach to North Korea and basically walking back the, the issue on tariffs. It's very hard to confront your adversaries at the same time you're at a trade war with your friends. But Zanny, he really believes in the tariff issue. I, I, this seems to me the biggest, possibly the biggest danger out there. I think he absolutely believes in it. I think the one thing that Donald Trump has been very clear about in the last 30 years is that he doesn't believe in multilateral trade and he thinks America's had a really rough deal and he intends to change that. And I think the interesting thing going forward, and one person that we haven't talked about yet is Larry Kudlow, who is the new uh, White House chief economic advisor. He is someone who was brought in, I think, in part, he's a TV pundit because he looks good on TV. He's talked a lot about the tax cuts. He's flattered the president on TV, but he is a free trader. And so the interesting thing to me is going to be whether this man, the new chief economic advisor, can convince the president not to be as extreme on trade as he would like to be. And the one area that I think you really need to look out for is what he does with China. 
because China is the place where he's got the biggest grievance on trade. The whole steel and aluminium stuff didn't really hit China very hard. But there, are, there is a big question about, is he going to slap tariffs on China to retaliate for their supposed IPO theft or for their theft of intellectual property? If he does that, we can see things get very nasty very quickly. You know, uh, Richard Haas, uh, he did, the, uh, President Trump did say that he hired Larry Kudlow. I think he called him up and said, I like what you say on TV and you're very handsome. Now, I do recall during the campaign, President Trump had said he liked what he heard you saying on TV, which leads me to wonder if you had gone to Larry Kudlow's <laughs> tailor, uh, would you be Secretary of State right now? Um, ser seriously, tell me what you think of the personnel. You know, we didn't get to this. So we, we've got... You've got uh, 60 seconds, but have you ever seen more chaos in the administration, in, you know, just the kind of staffing of an administration? No, and the president's making a dangerous mistake, Freed. He's training people with whom he's comfortable. But that's not what you want as president. You want people who will speak truth to power, who are experienced, who are, who are competent. So he may end up with the cabinet and staff he wants. It's not necessarily or it's far from the cabinet and staff that he needs. And again, the contrast potentially between this most daunting of worlds and inboxes, uh, a Russia that's become a real outlier, a difficult China, a Venezuela that's unraveling, the Middle East that long since unraveled, and, and the, the, the pressure on this set of people and a chaotic process at the risk of being self-whatever. You know, I wrote a book about a world in disarray. The combination of a world in disarray and an administration in disarray, that ought to keep people worried. That ought to keep people up at night. Well, and as you say uh, in, in a tweet of yours, uh, of your own, Richard Haas, uh, Peter Navarro, the, one of the president's uh, chief economic advisors, said uh, he thought his job was to find ways to justify, find analysis to justify the president's views, which is an, a rather bizarre way to look at it. Uh, you'd think that you'd first do the analysis uh, and not, not just try to justify whatever the president's uh, views were. Do you, do, you, do you worry that it's now going to be yes men all the way? Well, again, I, I, my, you know, the, the Secretary of Defense is not a yes man. The question, though, is whether he will be marginalized. We'll see who comes in at National Security Advisor, ultimately. And Mike Pompeo, you know, there's an old saying, Freed, where you stand depends upon where you sit. So the question from Mike Pompeo, is he the, kind of, the guy who was, say, in favor of tearing up the Iran agreement when he was on the Hill, or does he now take responsibility for the full dimension of American foreign policy, have a serious practical approach, maybe entertaining an interim agreement with the North Koreans because we're not going to get full denuclearization? Does he decide not to tear up an Iran agreement when we have nothing to replace it with? Is he prepared to get the president to moderate the, the tariffs? He has to decide, I think, whether he's going to be a secretary of state or whether he's going to be a confidant of the president. There's tension there. And I think how that plays out could be critical. All right. We got to go. Thank you. Fascinating conversation. When we come back, we will dig deeper into the Russia story with a terrific panel. Our quarrel is with Putin's Kremlin and with his decision. And we think it overwhelmingly likely that it was his decision to direct the use of a nerve agent on the streets of of the UK on the streets of Europe for the first time since the Second World War. That was the British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson on Friday pointing a finger 
for the poisoning of an ex-double agent and his daughter on British soil. Earlier in the week, British Prime Minister May told Parliament she was ordering the expulsion of 23 Russian diplomats, and Russia, of course, retaliated. So what to make of this spy story? Joining me now are Luke Harding, who wrote a terrific book on the last known poisoning of a Russian spy on British soil. The book is called A Very Expensive Poison, The Assassination of Alexander Litvinenko and Putin's War with the West. Anne Applebaum is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian who writes a foreign affairs column for The Washington Post. She joins me here in London, as does businessman Bill Browder, who was once the largest foreign investor in Russia. He has since become one of the fiercest critics of the Putin regime. Uh, Anne, wh what do you make of this, of this, poison, of this, um, this affair? What, what's, the, what's the significance of what happened? The, the significance is that the Russian government used a chemical <coughs> agent, a military-grade chemical agent, which it would have known would have been traced back to Moscow, which could only have been used by Moscow because Moscow invented it. Um, and it used it in Britain, in a provincial city, to carry out a very brazen murder of somebody who had been a British spy, but who was traded in a, in a spy swap for Anna Chapman and other, another, a number of others, including people who were based in the United States. And in other words, by doing so, Russia broke all kinds of unstated rules. You know, you don't attack spies who've been traded, traded and pardoned. You know, you, the use of a, of a, a military-grade chemical weapon in the middle of a crowded city center, a small city. Um, all kinds of assumptions that we make about how countries behave, civilized countries behave, inside one another's borders were broken. Um, and the message had to have been one of disdain for London. We don't believe you're going to do anything to us. Um, we're above all these old deals and arrangements. Uh, we just don't care anymore. Luke, uh, why, why would Putin do something like this? It seems provocative. It seems somewhat reckless. Is it, uh, you know, is it a new kind of uh, aggression? Is there, what's going on? Putin is supposed to be a smart guy. What's, this, what's the strategy here? Well, I think it's an interesting question about timing. Uh, this attack happened two calendar weeks before today's Russian presidential election. It plays well with conservative nationalist uh, voters inside Russia who maybe otherwise wouldn't have gone to the polls. So that, that's one dimension. But I actually think ultimately the, the target of this attack is the Russian elite. I think Srippal was merely the instrument. It's to anybody inside the Russian elite, whether they're an oligarch or a spy, um, who is thinking about cooperating with the West in general, but I would say with, with Western intelligence in particular, uh, that we can strike you at any moment. Uh, we will uh, damage you, your family as well. Uh, and I also think it's partly to do with Robert Mueller and his investigation. Bear in mind that the espionage operation to influence the 2016 U.S. election involved a lot of people. A lot of people know about this in Russia, and they will be thinking very hard and very carefully before, before telling anything of what they know. Um, Bill Browder, what to do uh, about this? Because, you know, I was struck by uh, Alexei Navalny, probably Russia's leading opposition politician, has a, uh, a long interview in The Times of London this morning in which he says, look, the West's response so far and Britain's response so far has the Kremlin laughing because this is precisely what they wanted. They wanted what he calls another installment in the, t in the TV show that they're running called Look, Look, the West Hates Us. Uh, and that that, uh, you know, feeds Putin's nationalism and his base. So uh, w where do you go from there? I mean, is this crisis provoked for that reason? And if that's the case, the more you oppose him, the more it plays into this game. Well, um, the, first of all, kicking out 23 diplomats 
is not going to, to have any impact on, on Putin. It's not going to prevent this from happening again. Remember that this happened, this is the second time that something like this has happened in the UK. Litvinenko was killed with nuclear poison, 2006. Um, what, what, what Putin will react to, and, and um, uh, the way to deal with this whole situation, is to go after him with targeted financial sanctions, to go after him and the people around him, his cronies, and the oligarchs who look after his money by seizing their assets in the UK. And everybody in the UK says, we don't have any, our cupboards are bare, there's nothing we can do. Well, that's not true. What we have in the UK and what we have elsewhere is that they commit their crimes in Russia, they keep their property in the West. And if we go after their property in the West, then this type of thing wouldn't happen going forward. You, you wrote a Washington Post column saying that the reason London is not responding more strongly is because essentially it has been in collusion uh, with Russian oligarchs laundering their money, allowing them to move their assets. And Navalny says go after the oligarchs and their children who live in London and use that money. That's certainly been true up until now. Um, I don't think that it's not actually just London, although London is the primary place. I don't think that we in the West have fully acknowledged the degree to which we are complicit in Putin's rise to power. Um, numerous accounts of how he came to power, how he made his money, show how he took money out of the Russian state, he and people around him. Uh, they took it abroad. They laundered it abroad. They brought it back into Russia. They bought property. And this is how they engineered their their rise to power. And Western banks, Western tax havens, Western accountants, Western lawyers, um, Western shell companies, all kinds of people, particularly in London, but not only, also in New York and Miami and Paris, um, helped them in all, all along the way. And this is why they have so much disdain for the West, because they know, they think of us as a, it's corrupt, you know, we can buy them, we can buy their lawyers, we can buy their political parties. Um, I think they're, the reason why they were so sure of themselves in intervening in the U.S. election was partly that. Look, we can use money to get anything. We, we, we got ourselves to power using Western money, uh, sort of leveraging, leveraging our money in and out of Russia using Western institutions. Why not just keep going? All right, so stay with us. When we come back, we will talk about just that, Russia and Trump. New reporting reveals contacts between Russians and Cambridge Analytica, the firm that helped the Trump campaign target voters. What to make of that? And we are back with Luke Harding, Anne Applebaum, and Bill Browder talking about Russia. Luke, you've studied the, the Russian intelligence very carefully uh, and its methods. And so I want to ask you, what do you make of this report that Cambridge Analytica, the firm that did extensive work for the Trump campaign, and really helped the Trump campaign figure out where to try to bring out voters and where to suppress voters, and the Russians... Uh, had some contacts, which had been previously denied by both sides. Uh, the contacts were through Luke Oil, a big Russian oil company. Um, is that a direct tie to the Kremlin? Is it possible that this was just, uh, you know, something unrelated? When you read that story, what did you make of it? I was deeply disturbed. It was an astonishing investigation uh, published uh, today in London by the Observer uh, newspaper. And of course, Look Oil is not like your regular oil company. It's uh, an appendage, essentially, of the Kremlin. And there's clearly a kind of connectivity there. Uh, and I think that the big point here is the way in which unscrupulous powers like Russia can 
take advantage of the porousness of the Western system, the fact that we're open. And for, for, for decades, the KGB was trying to influence elections and, and reshape European and American politics, and they never got very much purchase. But, but now, these methods have been updated uh, for the age of Facebook and, and Twitter and social media. And, uh, and what we're seeing is uh, an astonishing ability to kind of micro-target people and, and to push to push people to the extremes, to try and polarize the conversation. Um, and what Putin has been doing is to try and sort of instrumentalize social divisions in America, uh, in Europe and elsewhere for his own, uh, own advantage. I think it's very scary. And I think uh, our democracy is actually in a more precarious and I would say sort of perilous state than at any other time uh, in the 21st century. Um, Bill Browder, you know, the reason this is potentially important is we know the Russian uh, intelligence services know how to do cyber attacks. They know how to hack. They know how to use uh, Facebook, uh, uh, et cetera. But they don't have a reputation for having a deep and detailed understanding of what, which demographics in rural Ohio and Michigan to suppress and bring out. And, and that seems to have been provided by Cambridge Analytica. So if there is a link, if that was how they got the know-how of where to do this kind of work, that does suggest that there was, I mean, I, I don't know what one would call it, but it, it suggests that somebody was helping them in the United States. Well, if, if this link turns out to be true, I mean, you know, there, there are people who are, um, as Anne was talking about before, there are these Western enablers um, in all different fields. There's lawyers, there's investigators. Now, apparently, there are election um, and an analyzer manipulators um, involved in this, kind of, in this kind of thing, and they're doing it for money. Um, they don't see it as, as, as treason or being um, unpatriotic, and, and they're doing it for money. And, and to the extent that that link is, is proven, it's highly disturbing that you have a, uh, a major um, Russian company that's effectively under the thumb of Vladimir Putin um, somehow involved in a, uh, in a situation where, where somebody knows how to micro-target 50 million uh, voters. Do you think the Trump administration's response to the poisoning, uh, you know, in general, is it getting tougher? Does it feel to you like, you know, that period where it, Trump seemed strangely uh, unwilling to criticize Russia is over? Or are we still in that kind of world? I think his response to the poisoning was peculiar. Um, he made a, an initial comment saying, well, it sounds like it's Russia. Maybe it's Russia. Um, he hasn't tweeted about it when this is his preferred form of communication, as we know. Um, he still doesn't want to say it's Russia. It's it's a it's a it's a break of the rules. You know, we're standing by our ally. Uh, I was very struck by the fact that John McCain made a much more forthright, clear statement about who's responsible um, than Trump did. And it's true that the administration has signed on to a, a couple of big statements with uh, together with Germany and France and the support of the UK and our ally and so on. But it's very pro forma and it does doesn't come from him. And there remains something peculiar about his attitude to Russia, as if he's afraid to attack them. He doesn't want to attack them. He's, he's, he doesn't want to see, be seen to be criticizing them. And whatever, apart from uh, the, whether it was Cambridge Analytica working with Luke Oil, whether it was one of his numerous aides who were in touch with Russia during the campaign, um, whatever his exact role in that was, um, you know, you know we, we, we don't know. But there's something in his mind, there's something that's keeping him from acknowledging what Russia is and acknowledging the kinds of threats that Russia poses to the United States. We've got to leave it at that. Um, Anne Applebaum, Bill Browder, Luke Harding, pleasure to have you on. Next on GPS, it is election day in Russia. We will take you to Moscow for the latest news.
Russians have been voting for their next president this weekend, but I can say with almost certainty that they will simply re-elect their current president, Vladimir Putin. Let's go now to Moscow, where CNN's senior international correspondent, Matthew Chance, is standing by. Uh, Matthew, what I want to do is I, you know, it's, it's a strange sort of election, so I want to throw at you three pieces of polling that I've seen recently. The Washington Post put together a very interesting package. And the first one is simply... Vladimir Putin's approval rating, which is still at around 82 percent. And I'm wondering when you look at poll numbers, you know, you see this and it's done by reputable, independent, often Western polling agencies. What do you sense on the ground? Are those numbers real? Are people scared to say something or is is Putin genuinely popular? Well, I think this, Fareed, is a really underappreciated fact about Russia and about Vladimir Putin. Yes, I think he is genuinely popular. I know a lot of Russians, uh, personally and, and professionally, and a lot of them, despite their you know, liberal sentiments, despite their pro-Western leanings in many ways, uh, do genuinely believe that Vladimir Putin is the right kind of leader, the strong kind of leader, as they would characterize him, uh, needed to manage a country as diverse and as, and as vast as this. And Putin plays to that, of course. He also plays this kind of hyper-nationalistic card, which is that you know, Russia under Putin is a strong country. It will stand up to interference and intimidation from, from the West. Um, we saw that most recently the day before the election when Putin's foreign minister announced its retribution and its response to the expulsion of Russian diplomats from Britain by doing the same here and also upping the ante by closing down the British Council and the, uh, and the British consulate in St. Petersburg. And, you know, he, he thrives on this idea that he is seen as somebody who is a strong leader who, who will stand up to the West. And yes, I, I do believe that although there are a lot of people in Russia that, that, that despise him, uh, there, is a, there are far more who, who think he's the right guy for the job. Let me ask you, Matthew, again, if, if looking at these polls, there are two more that I want to show you and get your response. The first is... Uh, the number of people who regret the collapse of the Soviet Union. You remember Putin very famously once said this was the greatest disaster of the 20th century. Well, look at the number of Russians who agree. 58% of Russians still believe that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a mistake or they regret its decline. And then this final one, which strikes me as very interesting. So they asked Russians, do you believe Russia has an enemy? And of the ones who said they thought Russia had an enemy, 22% believed it was the United States uh, in 1999, and now it's 68% think it's the United States. So my question to you, Matthew, is, are we, is, is Russia now, you know, of, of a mood that they wish they were the kind of great power they were in the, in, the, in the days of the Cold War? And do they really want to stand up to the United States very specifically? Well, I mean, look, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that Putin has done is give Russians back a sense of their national pride, which they lost so dramatically and suddenly, really, when you, when you think about how suddenly the Soviet Union collapsed, back when that, that massive geopolitical event uh, took place. I mean, Russians were, you know, on an equal footing, in their minds at least, with the, with the United States, and they were suddenly reduced to, a, to, a, to a, an impoverished nation that had to 
go cap in hand, looking for, for food even from, from other countries. Um, it was a deeply humiliating uh, experience for, for many Russians that, 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 that fell off that perch. And, you know, they, they clung on, they have clung on to Vladimir Putin as their leader who can give them their pride back. And, and that's perhaps been one of the main reasons uh, for his enduring popularity today, that he has given Russians back their sense of pride. And I think we, we, we shouldn't dismiss that as an incredibly important uh, factor in, in this election and in Putin's popularity uh, in general. In, in terms of Russia's um, response or Russia's attitude, towards the United States. I mean, look, I mean, th they, there was a moment when Donald Trump was the candidate, when he was elected president of the US, when Russians really believed after years of being, you know, kind of jostled around and, and being, you know, kind of uh, uh, disrespected, I suppose they would see it, by the, by the Obama administration and those earlier, uh, that they thought the situation was going to turn around. Uh, they had really high hopes that Donald Trump was the president who was going to see the world from their point of view. And so they've been immensely disappointed in the past year and a half or so since the Trump presidency began that that did not happen. And I, I think that when your high, hopes are high and then they're unfulfilled, your disappointment is greater. Um, and I think that's probably why we're seeing those, those heightened figures that, that, that the United States is perceived as the enemy. It's fascinating reporting. Of course, what that suggests is Putin will be re-elected, uh, reaffirmed, and uh, there will be tough relations between him and the United States and the, the entire Western world. Uh, we will be following it, and we will be back. A daily dose of Fareed and his team. Now you can get it with Fareed's Global Briefing, the newsletter that gives you the best insight and analysis on global affairs. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed to sign up. The debate on allowing circumcision of boys has been an ongoing one in Europe for years. It's now being reignited, and it brings me to my question. Which country recently introduced a bill that would ban the circumcision of male children? Iceland, France, Sweden, or Belgium? Stay tuned and I'll tell you the correct answer. Now, I want to make sure you're aware of many ways to stay connected with GPS outside of this weekly show. First, if you ever miss a show, download our podcast and make sure you subscribe to it. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we have a weekly online quiz that allows you to test how well you know your world. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed Quiz. And you can also see how good you are at predicting world events. We've teamed up with Good Judgment Open to allow our viewers to tell us things like whether there'll be war with Iran or in the China Seas in 2018. You tell us what you think. Go to gjopen.com slash Fareed. The answer to this week's challenge is A. After passing a law in 2005 that makes female genital mutilation a crime, Iceland lawmakers now want to change the wording of the law from girls to children, according to the New York Times. The paper says that would make it the first European country to prohibit male circumcision. Although many Icelandic doctors and nurses support the bill, it has come under fire from Jewish and Muslim organizations who say it would restrict freedom of religion. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. 
Max subscription required.